I'm your brother, Joseph, the one you sold to Egypt. Now, don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves that you sold me here. You didn't send me here. It was God. In the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. A few summers ago, I listened to an audiobook by an author named Kate Bowler while driving around the Northeast visiting family like we all used to do. She's a church historian, a mother, a self-described incurable optimist, and she has one of the best book titles that I've ever heard. Everything happens for a reason, and other lies I've loved. In her academic work, Bowler studies the prosperity gospel, the loose collection of theologies and churches that teach that if your faith is strong enough, if you pray well enough, then God will rain down blessings on you here and now in this life. There's a whole world of faith healers and Christian financial advisors who teach you that based on your faith, you can become healthy, wealthy, and wise. Everything Happens for a Reason, though, is a memoir. In it, Bowler tells the story of her diagnosis and treatment for stage four cancer as a young scholar and the mother of a toddler, weaving together the theology she studied and her own life experience. She considers, on the one hand, the horrifying ideas of God that lurk behind the kind of empty platitudes we tend to say to people in situations like hers, who are really suffering. Everything happens for a reason. God never gives us anything more than we can handle, as if there were some reason for a young mother of a one-and-a-half-year-old to have cancer, as if it weren't way more than she could possibly handle. And on the other hand, she describes the embarrassment shown by her contacts in the world of the prosperity gospel when they learn of her disease. After all, she'd spent a few years visiting their churches, studying them, interviewing them. They'd grown to like her. Some had even become her friends. And yet, they knew, or at least they'd been told, that if Kate had just prayed a little harder, if her faith had just been a little more pure, Surely, God would never have let this happen. Surely, she wouldn't be sick. Many people, don't get me wrong, find comfort in both these sets of ideas. It's comforting for many people to imagine that God has a bigger plan for their lives, that things aren't random, but that somebody more powerful and more wise and more loving than they could imagine is in control of their destiny. And it's comforting for many people to imagine that they have some power in it and that it's based on their faith, that if they just hang in there and keep praying and keep believing, everything will turn out not only okay, but much better than okay. It's comforting, at least, until somebody tries those ideas out on you. Somebody tries to wipe away your pain with those platitudes. Hence the bittersweet title of the book, Everything Happens for a Reason and other lies I've loved. In light of all this, we might worry about Joseph's state of mind in our first reading from this morning. This is the same Joseph of the Technicolor Dreamcoat, the Joseph whose jealous brothers, angry that he was their father's favorite, kidnapped him and sold him into slavery in Egypt. 
Years later, Joseph has risen from the deepest pit in Pharaoh's prison to the highest role in Pharaoh's government. There's a famine in the whole region, and Joseph's brothers have come down from their home to look for food in Egypt to ask for help from Pharaoh's government. Joseph plays with them for a while, tries to see if they'll recognize the brother they mistreated so long ago. But it's been so long, and they've suppressed the memory so well that they don't even realize it's him. And when he finally reveals his identity to them, they're terrified and ashamed. And then Joseph reaches deep down into that bag of platitudes. Don't be upset, he says. Don't be angry with yourselves. You didn't send me here. It was God. Don't be angry with yourselves that you sold me here. God sent me before you to save lives. You didn't send me here. It was God. Everything we might summarize happens for a reason. You may know that Garrett and I share a fondness for the French Reformed theologian Jean Covin, better known probably as John Calvin. Calvin is a beautiful writer, and there's a lot to be said for his theology, but sometimes it is really hard to take. I'm reminded today, for example, of Calvin's writing on the providence of God. Whether poverty or exile, Calvin writes, or prison or insult, or disease, or bereavement, or anything like them torture us. We must think that none of these things happens except by the will and providence of God, that he does nothing except with a well-ordered justice. Calvin, of course, was writing five centuries ago, but you can pick up his words and apply them to any point in human life. He could easily be writing about Joseph's story of imprisonment, or he could be writing about Kate's story of disease. He could be writing about coronavirus. He could be writing about any one of the millions, even billions, of tiny tragedies and huge ones that have afflicted human beings throughout our existence. And yet, reflecting on thousands of years of human suffering, all that one of the world's most prominent theologians can come up with is a variation on that same theme, that everything happens for a reason. That same worldview that, at least to me, seems to turn God into the author, the creator of our pain. Coming from the abstract pen of great theologian John Calvin, or coming from the pulpit of a pre-2020 white American Calvinist preacher, this seems awful. Who are you, we might say, to tell me that God planned all this pain for me? Who are you, when you say that God has created everything with a well-ordered justice, to tell me that this is the way God wants the world to be? We rightfully, I think, rage against the smug who tell us that everything happens for a reason, that everything is part of God's plan when they are healthy and rich and fit. If we are sick, and poor and tired. But that image of the smug preacher is not who Calvin was, and it's not who Joseph was. People will often call John Calvin Swiss because he spent decades leading the church in Geneva, in Switzerland. 
But Calvin was not Swiss. Calvin was French, a subject of the French crown, a Picard from the north of France, just across the English Channel. His decades in Geneva were spent there as an exile, as a refugee, as someone who'd been welcomed to the city after some trials and tribulations, but after being driven from his native France by political and religious violence and persecution. His day-to-day -day life was grueling, not because he was a fun-hating curate, but because for decades he was racked by physical pain and illness, which he documented in letters to his friends in gruesome pre-modern detail. If you ever read a biography of Calvin and you get to some of the medical bits, you might want to skip them. You cannot unread those things. And the communities of Calvinists who took up his teachings on election and predestination and providence, these doctrines of predestination, double predestination, these understandings of God's sovereignty and power over all things, they weren't a self-righteous spiritual elite sitting in their cozy pews and judging the world outside. They were a scared religious minority who were driven literally from continent to continent, from Europe to South America and to North America, for the way that they spoke of God and the hymns they sang. And yet they claimed that this was God's own will. They took the most terrible chapters of their lives and they bound them together into a new story that God was writing for them, in which all their suffering made sense, in which everything happens for a reason. They cast themselves as characters in a kind of new exodus, a story of pilgrimage and wandering, of a chosen people afflicted and oppressed by the powers that be, but who would ultimately be destined for greatness, hence the Massachusetts Bay Colony. It's the same in Genesis. Joseph rises in Pharaoh's court, and with a little help from some divine dreams, he invents a brilliant new way of managing grain supplies, and the people of Egypt thrive amidst a famine. But Joseph, looking back, reframes the story of his slavery and his rise for his brothers. It's not you who sent me here, he tells them, but God. This story of Joseph's perseverance and success isn't a personal quirk. It's not amnesia on the individual level, but it's part of a broader phenomenon. In fact, many biblical scholars might tell you that this, grouped together with the book of Esther and a handful of similar ancient texts, is a story that they believe was written relatively late in the process of creating the Old Testament, after the Jewish people's homeland had been destroyed and they'd been scattered for the first time. A story told by people already living in exile, like Joseph, trying to understand their own lives, not as stories of trauma and defeat, but as stories of success and redemption and survival. Strangely enough, this kind of re-narration, this kind of retelling a story to change its meaning, is one of the primary modern treatments for post-traumatic stress. Now, I'm not a psychologist, but I have taken a little psychology and my understanding is that psychologists have established that survivors of trauma who understand their own stories as stories of helplessness and victimization, stories in which they had no power, are at a much higher risk for developing PTSD than survivors who understand themselves as having had some role in resistance 
of having claimed some agency. This isn't, of course, a way of blaming victims for their own PTSD. It's not a way of telling people, if you just didn't see yourself as a victim, it would be fine. But it's the basis for a longer-term therapy in which, in the context of a loving, supportive, safe environment, someone can tell and retell and reimagine their own story, not only the chapters that have happened, but the chapters of the present and of the future, and they can begin to write something new for the end. In a therapeutic setting, of course, this isn't a religious exercise, but for Joseph and for John Calvin and for many others, God's 30 million foot view of history is the narrative frame, the bigger story, the arc within which they can reimagine and reclaim their own power and begin to rewrite their own lives. The most important thing, though, is this. It is Joseph and Calvin who tell their own stories this way. It is neither comforting nor helpful to tell someone else that their suffering is part of a larger plan, to tell someone else everything happens for a reason. But it can be powerful to retell one's own story in the first person within this larger context of God's redeeming love. This process of re-narrating our own lives probably sounds exactly as it is, both simple and extraordinarily difficult. But it sometimes has the power not only to reduce our pain and suffering, but to transform us, to make us guides for others. Not blind guides leading the blind, as Jesus says, but spiritual leaders like John Calvin, powerful writers like Kate Bowler, wise governors like Joseph. Joseph's brothers tell the story that they, as good as killed him, by throwing him into that pit. But Joseph tells the story that God sent him to save their lives. In retelling that story, Joseph finds himself transformed from victim to savior, from a boy lying at the bottom of a pit to a man sitting high up on a throne. And in that retelling, he is not only healed, he somehow becomes strong enough to heal and to forgive. It almost goes without saying that we all have stories of trauma to tell right now. None of these stories are over. The plot might still twist one way or another, and we're only, it seems, part of the way through the book. But right now, already, somehow, mysteriously by the grace of God, we have the power to participate in writing and rewriting our own stories. We have the power to understand where we are not just victims, but survivors, where we are not just the afflicted, but healers, to ask God where God might be sending us right now, if not to save lives per se, although some of us will, at least to do something to heal others. May we have the grace to understand what those things are and the power to do our part in fulfilling them. Amen.